Earlier, when Brad was teaching the Qigong practice about the central column, the vertical axis, and uh, I, I know he used the word column. I can't remember if he used the word tube, but I heard tube, um, <clears throat> which on a physiological level, we begin as a little tube, apparently. We can discuss where we begin, but there's a physical aspect that be begins as a tube. And I was reminded and amused by this. There's a, there was a Leonard Cohen song that came out a few years ago where there's this sort of verse, and it's, I imagine it's like God speaking to him or some guidance is speaking to him. And it's very sweet, very tender, as a lot of those songs can be, very loving. <clears throat> and as guidance or God or whatever it is speaking about Leonard, he says, well, he's just a brief elaboration of a tube, a brief elaboration of a tube. So it's one way of looking at it. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that sometimes, does it? And what are you going to do with this one brief elaboration? We don't know if there's another one. Some traditions say there is. Maybe we're not keen on that. Maybe we want another one, maybe we don't. But meanwhile, here we are, this marvelous elaboration of a tube. You know, I think from the tube, I'm sure the anatomists among you, and I know Brad knows a lot about this, but you know, the other bits kind of grow off it, and here we are, here we are. There was a note, that, in fact, there's a few notes from people, and hopefully we'll get to answer some of those questions, if not tonight, then tomorrow, or um, many lovely questions coming in. But somebody asked, well, if, if, you know, if you can't get your happiness out there, or whatever, something, 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 what's the point? What's the point in this existence? Is it just, you know, what's it for? You know, so because we could easily hear the Buddha's teachings as um, a bit of a party pooper, you know, like raining on our parade, the parade we are promised, at least in the magazines. But I don't think that's it at all. He's countering our tendency, and he's very precise, it's quite beautiful. He says, those who assert that the world is real and those who assert that the world is not real. He doesn't let either of you get away with it. Asserting that the world is real or not real. Because in the mind, well, if it's not real that I can make my home there, then where's left for me to go? Well, it's not real then. The mind can only do binary, right? This or that, up or down, real or not real. And he's saying, no, both of those are extreme views. He said, come back to the middle way, right? Right here, this unvarnished living present, raw, unvarnished living present, here you will find the purpose, meaning, relevance of this brief elaboration of a tube. One way of seeing practice <clears throat> is that 
we develop a wisdom that is whole, holistic, holy, in, in the sense that it includes everything, right? And this doesn't have to be pie in the sky. It's not that you have to know about everything, but it includes what can arise. It can embrace what arises, and that's what we've been practicing. So this isn't a metaphysical speculation. This is what you've been practicing. Things arise, and we're learning how to embrace them rather than just pushing them away, drawing them towards us, spacing out around them, embracing them, accepting them, and widening, getting bigger than, transcending any particular. So this is how my teacher defines practice. He says, to develop a holistic wisdom that embraces and transcends any point or detail within the whole any point or detail within the whole that accepts and cares for all but not attached or confined to any position within the cosmos. Cosmos makes it sound rather grand, doesn't it? But what would it mean to be not attached to any position within the cosmos? Have you ever been attached to a position within the cosmos? (laughs) You don't even have to think of cosmos, you can think of your kitchen, you know. Right there, I'm attached to how it should be, and why don't you do the washing up like this, and why do they always, and, right? So we're not, it's not something more metaphysical than your kitchen. This is the cosmos in that moment, right? Attached to a particular position within the cosmos, and this is how he says it. He says, self, that's something we can confine around, other, mind states. Any of you seen that? Any mind states arise that you confine around and take a position around. Here he gives more example. Trees, society, or even infinite consciousness. Not even taking a position. Let's imagine, or maybe it's so for you, you touch wide, wide infinite consciousness in your meditation. Not even that is a position to take within the cosmos. And he says, the culmination of this wisdom is awakening. To include, embrace the particular, but not be limited to and attached to that particular. Sometimes the question comes up then, well, if I'm not wrapped around a particular thing, a particular person or a particular idea, if I'm not really wrapped around it and passionate about it, Does that mean I'm going to not care? Does that mean I'm going to somehow be like some lukewarm participant in the cosmos that's not really into something? No, and again, I think this is the mind's conundrum. I think we can only know this through the practice. No amount of deliberation, I think, will solve that. Think about it. When I'm not, if I'm not picking up a particular position and shrinking around it, whether it's, let's say it's my husband, (laughs) let's say it's my husband, right? What could be an example in the kitchen with a husband? Anyone think of any possible examples? Could be, (laughs) actually my mind goes to places where he wants to confine me in a position in the kitchen, but I won't go there. 
let's say, what could it be? I'm thinking of all the things. I'm thinking of all the things, all, all my erroneous ways in the kitchen. Let's do it that way around. I think it's easier. So let's say I put the knives the wrong way up in the knife, in I've washed them up, and then I stick the blade facing up. It's not a big deal, is it? But, you know, we, ha- we, we get an idea about how things should be, and rightly so. He's like, that's not safe. You know, he's got his health and safety hat on. That's not safe. You know, we've talked about this. How many, like, you know, the knives go that way, so you don't, like, blunt the blade, but you don't have it sticking up, because someone, you know, and it's true, right? That's ca- potentially caring. But there's a way, then, that we could both shrink and tighten. Does it ring any bells with anyone? Right, we can sort of shrink and tighten. And whether it's, you know, you don't have to have a husband for this. It's, it's anyone, isn't it? It's any place where we think we know how something should be, and then I shrink and tighten, and pew, And there we have limited our position in the cosmos. Right? It's a very grand way of saying it, isn't it? It's a grand way of saying having a fight. But um, we've limited... <laughs> But that's what it is. That's what a fight is. We've limited our position in the cosmos. And both doesn't like something about the way it should be. And we've shrunk around it in that moment. And what's happened, actually? (coughs) That's not evidence of our caring, is it? The evidence of the caring would be a discussion around it where there's a little bit more room. But you know those moments when we shrink and... (coughs) That's not caring. That's where our passion about the way we think things should be has run away with us. And we've lost contact with the stillness, the silence, the wisdom of the sage. And you are, we are growing into that sageness. The sageness that knows the peace of taking her hands off in touch with more aspects of the totality and within that the particular can be dealt with and the care is actually more freed up. This isn't news to any of us, but it's a gut reflex how we shrink, isn't it? It's a gut reflex how we go, it should be like that, you shouldn't speak like that, it could be like, right? It's a gut reflex, we've clung before we know it. And our practice will be not giving ourselves a hard time about that, but seeing the dukkha in it, seeing the dis-ease, the suffering. Suffering, yes, the fight is a suffering, but what's more of the suffering is the way we've lost, as an individual being, I've lost touch with the totality, the wholeness, the holiness. I've lost touch with that and I shrink to a particular and I actually feel bereft. Feels like a loss. Because I've shrunk the nobility of my nature in that moment. So not clinging actually means I have more room to resonate with life, with totality, with myself, with the other. Can you see that? One of my teachers, she gave this very nice example. She said, 
hope it works with this bell. It used to be a smaller bell in the old days. I'm not sure I've tried it with this one. Sometimes people think that releasing or letting go or non-attachment would mean, you know, if I'm, if I, okay, let's start here. She used to say, okay, imagine you're holding on. This is the bell. You love the bell and it's the right bell and it's going to sing and it's going to be great, she said. But you're holding it really tight. And she said, what happens? <laughs> Did you get it? <laughs> it's not difficult, is it? What happens? You tr it doesn't ring. It can't resonate. It's too tightly held. That's other, that's self, it's my heart, it's my head, it's my body. And then she said, some people think then if I'm going to let go, it means I toss it away. As if it has something to do with indifference. That's the binary mind. And then she used to sit there in her loveliness and she'd unhook her hands, open her palm out and she'd say, no, letting go is like this. She'd put the bell and then she'd say, and look. Right? We can ring. You can ring. The husband can ring. The cat can ring the things that I try and demand to be those fixed points for me in the universe, right? I try and have them for my security and I tighten my own heart and nothing can ring. So this is our practice, is for living, is for living, taking my hands off this heart-mind chitta this heart-mind can ring, it can resonate. It has what is called in the tradition, one of its qualities when we're not clinging, is anukampa, which means to resonate along with. To resonate along with. It's always along with sometimes translated as a fellow feeling, feeling for our fellows. And sometimes we have a limited definition of who our fellows are. Sometimes it's just me, and I can't even resonate there yet, because it's still a little tight and confined in here. Sometimes my little group I resonate with might be the people like me, family or not family or, right? Widening the metta, the loving-kindness practices where fellow feeling, the resonating along with, widens and widens and includes more and more. I want to give a, uh, try and give an example of how to work with that in the moment, because that's where our practice is. Right? How to work with that in the moment where I see that I've got gripped, 
where I see that I've got gripped. Now that already is huge, to see that we've got gripped. And it's a gut reflex. Again, there's no blame in this story. It happens so fast before even our conscious mind is caught on to what's happening. I can give an example, um, many. (laughs) I can give an example of Um, I think I'll give an example of when I being on retreat here. So um, one time I was on retreat here, and I had to, I had to eat the my yogi job was the supper tea wash up, and uh, I was the only one on signed on. It wasn't a big retreat like this. It was I was just in the hermitage wing. So there was probably, and it was winter, and it was a long time ago before it was often full. And so there wasn't, there wasn't that many people in the house. So I had to do the tea wash up on my own, clear the kitchen, sort out all the food, and do all the washing up. You know how it goes, I'm sure, some of you. And uh, I was a bit miffed that I had to do it on my own was quite a lot of work to fit in the, I don't know, time that I, before I wanted to get back into the meditation hall. And there was this sort of lurking sense of, oh, you know, sort of grumpy feeling, but I did it and I was working with it and doing my best. And, but I hadn't quite clocked that I was already a bit miffed and angry about this state of affairs. And days went past, I was here for a couple of weeks, the days went past and it was the kitchen was different to how it was, and it had these old scruffy old wooden cupboards back then, and uh, they looked really scruffy. And I got really annoyed that they were so scruffy and not painted very well, and tea stains on them. And and I'd do my yogi job at night. Didn't see this most of the time, you know. As one of my teachers says, "Have you ever wondered where your mind is when you're not mindful?" <laughs> it's doing stuff like this. <laughs> It's doing stuff like that. Have you ever wondered where your mind is when you're not actually knowing what it's doing? Check it out. <laughs> Hard by definition to check that out, but get interested because it's weaving this little weaves of self and other. All right. So there I was grumbling about this. And day after day it would be, and, and I was, I'm going to write an, a letter to the um, trust you know, they shouldn't have such scruffy cupboards. It's an abomination to... Blah, blah, blah. You know, and there I was, ranting in my mind, <laughs> right, ready to write my letter. And then after, I don't know, it took ages, I think, like two weeks or something, I got, went back into the kitchen. It's like, what's going on here? <coughs> what's happening here? Okay, this is dukkha. This is suffering. Okay. Yeah, but they should have... Okay, yeah, yeah, I know that part. Just check it out. What's happening right here? The suffering is actually arising here. Yeah, but... And then I started to listen. Then there was a moment of mindfulness. Yeah, but... but, And nobody ever... And nobody takes... And nobody... And I listened. And nobody's caring about me. Oh. Here's the one who believes that no one cares about her. 
pausing there, holding there, listening there. The mindfulness is joined by the silence of the sage and that passion can start to unravel. Yeah, but, oh, here she is, the one who believes nobody cares about her. And in that moment of really being heard, I felt the pain, the historical pain, the old pain, the pain of momentum of that belief, which I didn't even know I had that belief. Actually, too busy was I complaining or moaning or whatever it was, right? The hurt that was in it, feeling the tears in it, breathing with it. She is in that moment embraced and transcended. And she rests. So the anukampa, the pulsating along with, there's enough room in that moment to pulsate along with these patterns, these self-images, these things I've taken myself to be based on conditions. Pulsate along with this pain. And as we do, there can be release, actually. So heart-mind, where we've been attending and cultivating all these days, chitta, the word from the tradition, this heart-mind is arising moment to moment in a mutual environment of the totality of everything. And I think, if I may be so bold to say, I think that's understood in... So in certain branches of the scientific tradition, you know, these understandings of if a butterfly flutters her wings there, there's an effect. There's an effect on the totality, actually. And one of my teachers, he used to say, uh, his teacher, a monk in Thailand, would come sometimes into the Dharma hall to give the Dharma talk and would be silent and sometimes make a gesture where he would do like this. Right? Not dissimilar to what we've been doing, actually, in the Qigong. And the gist of that teaching was every action has an effect. Every inaction has an effect. There is not an action, internally or externally, that exists in isolation of the whole. It just feels like that when we shrunk. 
So I like how one of my teachers describes this heart-mind. He says, this is the meeting place. You, you are the meeting place, whether you like it or not, of internal and external realities. Right here. He says, this is the growth point of the cosmos. Right here. This chitta, this heart-mind, why? Because it's at that interface of inner and outer. It's not mine, is it? Because it's affected by everything that I'm in contact with. You know, Catherine rings a few bells during the meditation and it has an effect. I might like it, might dislike it. But we're constantly arising in a mutual environment. We cannot, we never did do this thing alone. We are always impacting something, which can feel like a bit of a mixed Thing, can't it? It's like, oh my God, I don't want to impact anything. I don't want to, oh dear. Right, but we do. We do and practice, the wisdom of our practice is to start to know which actions to follow and which ones to leave behind. That's what wisdom is. Which actions lead to more happiness and which actions lead away from happiness. So today in the meditation, I gave you the piece which I like very much of the advice to Rahula, advice to his son from the Buddha. And I selected a couple of pieces of it, right? The Rahula, I really like that. It's like he's teaching his son. So I find that very kind of intimate thing of, you know, if you've got any funny ideas that the Buddha's some mystic figure, he's a guy who had a son. And he cared about the heart-minds of people and beings. So he says, Rahula, develop a meditation that is like the sky, that is like space, that is like the air. That's the ones we looked at today. And I just want to tell you that wasn't the only advice he gave to his son. (laughs) So I want to just fill out that picture of the um, elements. And so he also says, Rahula, this is you also, Develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. And then he goes on. Rahula, develop meditation that is like water. For when you develop meditation that is like water, arisen, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people wash clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, piss and blood, pus in blo- and blood in water, and the water is not horrified, humiliated and disgusted. Because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like water. And then, have you spotted the one that's missing? Rahula, develop meditation that is like fire. For when you develop meditation that is like fire, agreeable agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people burn clean things and dirty things, that nice attractive list of excrement, urine, spittle, pus and blood in the fire, he wasn't shying away. And the fire is not horrified, humiliated and disgusted. Because of that, so too Rahula developed meditation like fire. What does that mean? What does that mean? 
where what is called physical elements like earth, right, body, it's the material substance, water, there's lots of that today, fire and air, where they are also qualities of the citta. This heart-mind can be cultivated. Imagine the central column, this wide presence of uprightness, like water, like earth, firm, firm and not blown around, water, flowing, fluid, moving, air, like we studied today, and fire. It's got fire. It's got zeal. It's got the capacity to cut through, burn up the dross. So sometimes in your meditation, if you heat up physically, if you heat up internally, as one of my teachers says, it's okay, cook, cook. So we don't need to look for those things. Different things arise. Some of us are already fiery enough, right? We might need the water or the air or the earth. Fire doesn't always have to be explosive. And again, another teacher, she says, you don't, you know, sometimes we talk about fire and it's like, sounds exciting and, right? Especially when we have such a damp climate. But fire, she said, you don't always need a blowtorch to fry an egg. <coughs> we don't know or have to get really fiery about everything. It can be very, very subtle, that pilot light of our heart. I want to offer this piece of teaching from the Buddha, which I think is brilliant. So he says, when that shrinkage happens, where we go, we take our position, whether it's our view, our opinion, whether it's a feeling that we say, absolutely, this is me. Whether it's an idea we have about the other person, though they are absolutely like that, or the other group, or the enemy. He says, in that moment of shrinking into self, there's always other, right? There's always other. He said, while that's unexamined, there will be conflict. When us internally have an unexamined sense of self and other, this is what, this is what leads to uh, distress, internally and externally, in our inner life and in our world. This is... This is the stuff that weapons are made of. They're not other people. They start here in our mind. One, um, one friend of mine, her Japanese Zen teacher, he was traveling with her to Australia and they got to the airport and I, they said to him, are you carrying any dangerous weapons? And he said, yep. And they, they went, hmm? And he pointed here. He goes, yep. Right? He wasn't under any illusion as to where this can go. 
in the human realm when it isn't integrated with fellow feeling, with anu kampa, with that capacity to pulsate along with fellows, fellows who are sensitive like us, fellows who want to be loved and know their love like us, fellows who might mess up horribly and, and are in urgent need of forgiveness like us. Fellows who want shelter and food and like us. And that pulsating along, we can learn to trust it. Somebody said today, oh my God, I can sense my heart getting wider and wider. And there's a fear that arises with that, she said. And when we looked at it, she said, the, the fear is that I will lose myself. That if I love everything, or start to love more and more, things, beings, things, love is love, right? It just loves. That I'll lose myself. And it's a very, not an uncommon fear that if the heart is really open, we won't have this unique, autonomous, uh, precisely defined, different being. We'll kind of give ourselves away and merge in the crowd. And I, I think it's a good question because I think that can happen. Some people who very naturally have a, you know, when Brad talked about the three centers, head, heart, and belly, some people have a head start on the heart, it looks to me. <laughs> I will, I'm not one of them. Right, they have a head start. There's already a lot of, um, seems available for them from early on. Sometimes those people who do f pulsate along with feel a lot, very sensitive in their humanity, wish to serve, can, not always, sometimes find that they burn out because they've given it away. That they forgot something in the equation which was this one, this one. The wisdom will support that love. The wisdom of, and as the Buddha said, there isn't someone more or less worthy of your love. You're, you are the totality. You're not only a part of the totality. The more we hang out here, we find the totality arising in us, all beings. The ones who cry, the ones who laugh, the ones who are outraged, the ones who are sensitive, the ones who could kill, the ones who just want to be held. We hang out with our own heart, mind enough, we see that it's not those people out there that are the bad ones. And it's not me in here that's the bad one. The bad and good division can relax. But there is a heart-mind that can be cultivated for the benefit of the totality. This is the gift. This is something to think about for this brief elaboration, <coughs> brief elaboration of this tube. Here's a poem that many of you will know called Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. I could stop there, couldn't I? <laughs> you do not have to be good. 
You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you about mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of rain are moving across the landscape, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. That's Mary Oliver. Our longing to belong and to know our belonging deeply, fully, is a, a sacred longing, I would say. And we can belong, we can know that belonging. This chitta, this heart mind, this interface of inner and outer, that's where we will know the belonging. Where we're not all out there and we're not all in here, all pulled away and pulled back. We stand at the middle way, at the threshold where the two worlds meet the world of asserting that the world is real and asserting that the world is not real. They are extreme views. Right here in the middle. Can you bear it? Can you bear witness right now as you sit? It's not a future arrival place. It's to be known by each one for herself. This is the place where we find our belonging. But it asks us to live with uncertainty. We can't fix it all, right? We can't get our little position in the cosmos and have it nailed down. As much as we might like that, that is not in the nature of things. Things are constantly arising mutually and passing. We are. Can we bear that, what can feel vulnerable, insecure at times? Brad talked about vulnerability last night very beautifully. Just to say, um, this humanness, which he talked about between the sky and the earth, this human realm that we're in, where our fellow fellows are. This 
belongs to the nature of things and the nature of things is not nailed down, fixed and secure. Some of you might know the quote, famous quote from Helen Keller where she says, um, security is mostly a superstition. She says, it is not to be found anywhere in the nature of things. She said, either life is a glorious adventure or it is nothing. Right? When we nail it all down and fix it down to try and get our little spot. Now that doesn't mean you can't have a house or you know, somewhere to park your car. But what we do with that internally, the, the gift of that vulnerability is the adventure. Adventure comes from a mind that has not nailed it down. Otherwise, there's no adventure. And a vulnerability can also be understood. Not, it's not just vulnerable to harm, which is how we tend to use it in English, at least. Vulnerable also means being vulnerable to the touch of our depths. If we want to know the depths of the mystery that we are, that everything is, we have to be available. Being available means our hands are open. We can tolerate a little bit of not knowing, a little bit of insecurity. And then we sit in that middle seat and can be touched by this mystery that we are. And the heart tends to love that. The heart loves that. So this is the place of a dynamic participation in this world. A dynamic participation. And dynamic doesn't, you know, sometimes we hear the word and you think you have to be like this. Might be, you might be like that. <coughs> dynamic means alive, where the life keeps arising moment to moment here, right here. This is a dynamic participating event, this world, this planet, this life, or it is nothing. Do you want to come to the party? Are you at the party? The piece of teaching that I said was brilliant, I never got to it. I got diverted on my track. He says, when we do that shrinking, shrinking to the particular... Sorry, I'm going to put the Buddha on hold for a second. Um, shrinking to a particular is different than highlighting a particular. Yes, we need to highlight particulars in this world. We need to look specifically at specific things very often in our kitchen, in our heart, in our government, in our country, in our planet, as our planet. Yes, highlighting a particular is much more effective when our hands are also off it. Right? What is it that moves us to act if it's not my clinging, if it's not my ranting, if it's not my fear or despair? And therein lies the, ta the mystery. So bring the Buddha back. This brilliant teaching, he says, when we shrink and lose touch with the totality, become a separate self, he says, 
these three kinds of craving we can see and study for ourselves. The first is called kama tanha. Tanha means thirst, hunger, craving that I'm not going to be happy till I get that thing, right? That's the thirst of tanha. Kama tanha is our appetite for sense, for our senses to be filled up. Sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, thought. Yeah. The need to acquire and possess things. It's a very common one, isn't it? The need to acquire, to have something for me and mine and possess. He says the second, we've looked a little bit at it, is bawa tanha, tanha the thirst. Bawa means becoming, the craving to become someone, to become someone better, to become someone other, to become one of these, one of those, one of that football team, one of this, right? which is different than taking on roles and functions and being a wife or being a social worker or whatever you might do, but becoming it, believing it's who we are, believing that the convention, like the example here is the teacher, right? Believing I'm the teacher, becoming the teacher, I will suffer. Because what happens then when, if I think this is who I am, what happens when, you know, I, the example I used to give, well, it must have been a very long time ago, it was my dad. He's been dead a very long time now. Imagine I think I'm the teacher and I go home to my dad and I try and tell him about Kama Tanha. And he goes, Kath, you know, can you go and buy some ice cream? Or whatever it is, it, it's like. But don't you know I'm, I'm the Dharma teacher, Dad. Right, the becoming. It's a very obvious example, but it can be more and more subtle. The need to stand out, to prove oneself by competing and acquiring status and power. Right, that's the becoming. And I think many of us drawn to spiritual practice see the downside in that. We can see that the celebrities who've become aren't necessarily any happier than anyone else. Right? It might be clear to us, but then we can fall into the third craving if we're not careful. There is no let out. Vibhava tanha, the craving to not become. He doesn't, he doesn't leave us anywhere to hide. Right? The craving to shrink the craving to be nothing. Have you ever felt that? It's like, oh, it didn't work doing all that becoming. I want to just get out of here. I want to be nothing. I'm, now I'm a nobody. There's a lovely story from the Jewish tradition. Again, some of you might know, and I probably can't do it justice. Um, people are there in the synagogue praying and one guy understands this uh, call from God to know that you're nothing 
on one level, the humility. So the story goes that he goes up to the altar or wherever you go and he says, he says, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And the other guy, some other guy sees him at the bank and goes, oh, that looks good. And he comes up and stands beside him and goes, yes, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And they're enjoying their nobodiness. Sounds a little bit like they're becoming nobody. And then the third guy comes up, seeing what they're doing, liking it, and goes, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And the first two, one of them looks to the other one and they go, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> look who thinks he's nobody. Right? We can't even become nobody. Right? Because the dynamic, here's the joy in it. It does sound a little bit like, whoops, nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide here. Yes. <laughs> nowhere to hide here. So here the invitation of the wise ones, the sages, come, come sit. Come sit in this threshold of inner and outer. Come sit here and learn that place. Heal this heart-mind and know the joy of the dynamic participation that is sometimes very quiet, sometimes deep in silence, sometimes profoundly enveloped in quiet. Come here to this seat, this threshold of inner and outer, this growth point of the cosmos but sometimes dynamic and animated and serves and stands up for what needs standing up for and says no to what needs to be said no to. But it hasn't lost touch with the sage. How to bring together the silence of the sage and the passion of the one who wants to serve life or loves life or wants to say no to harm. How to marry that passion and that silence. Right here is where we can know that. Right here. So our love for beings and the world and the sensitivity to that does not have to take us into despair when we look and see all the pain and the horror. We may feel it. We may pulsate along with it. The loving heart pulsates along. With also the joy and the beauty and the magnificence and the diversity and the display incredible world. And the silence that calls us 
that calls us deeper and deeper and deeper. This is from Thomas Merton. He says, there is a reality that is present to us and in us. Call it, he's just looking for a word, call it being, call it silence. And the simple fact that by being attentive, by learning to listen, or recovering the natural capacity to listen, we can find ourselves engulfed in such happiness that it cannot be explained. The happiness of being at one with everything in that hidden ground of care for which there can be no explanation. We can find ourselves engulfed in such happiness that it cannot be explained. The happiness of being at one with everything in that hidden ground of care for which there can be no explanation. So let's sit together for a minute. All beings deepen in their love of the quietitude, the silence. May all beings trust their dynamism, their dynamic participation in this life. May all beings know the lightness and joy of the human heart. 